This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And welcome back to the dark room. Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com. I am Brad Kelly. This is my co-host, Kevin Kautzman. Kevin, how are you doing? Never better. Never I'm ready better. to get boshed. Get ready to get boshed once I'm going to help everybody get boshed. <laughs> Back for round two. Yeah, so for people so for people who, uh, you know, maybe are dipping their toes into our darkness for the first time, um, this is a dark room episode. What that means is we have done a in-depth core episode on our subject, in this case, Hieronymus Bosch. Um, I think the episode we did was June of 20, uh, 20 of last year, June of 2022. So almost just over a year ago, um, we, we did a deep dive into Hieronymus Bosch, one of our, uh, more unusual episodes in a way, because there's not nearly as much biographical information about the subject as some of the more recent folks that we've done. Um, and this is a dark room and what a dark room is, is it's sort of like a breakout session. We bring in somebody who knows more about the subject, knows the subject differently, has some unique insights, uh, is somebody we want to talk to. Um, and we go a little further, we go a little deeper, we go a little wider even, um, mm. in this case, I'm very excited. We have the great MJ Dorian from creative codex. A fantastic podcast that everybody, all the Art of Darkness audience is going to enjoy if you aren't already listening to it. MJ, thank you for being with us. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Brad, Kevin. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I've been following you guys for a while. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite paintings of all time. So yeah, off we go. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, and I should say, people, have, you did a two-part series on Bosch, specifically the Garden of Earthly Delights as well. Um, I think between the two of us, uh our show and that show uh, there's a whole lot of great interesting compelling bosch audio out there for, for for folks and it's interesting that 500 some odd years have passed uh and this still feels like a vital subject to talk about in many ways oh yeah yeah, yeah. he is thoroughly modern and i have friends who are current contemporary artists who do incredibly abstract work no human figures or forms will ever be found in their works and when they found out I was doing an episode on Hieronymus Bosch and specifically this painting, they were like, oh, that's my favorite painting. I'm like, what? <laughs> right, I thought you right. didn't even like humans. All you do is paint shapes. Right. But, um, so I keep I keep running into these kinds of incidents of, of people who uh, just love it so much. They love that one painting. Yeah. And I noticed, too, we have uh, Kevin and I have 
I have strong opinions about AI, but I have noticed that there have been many, many attempts to try and get AI to make Bosch like images. It's like almost one of the first things that people went to is like, can this thing make a Bosch? Um, which is, again, I don't I have feelings about AI, but that's interesting that that's the first one of the first places that people go is can it can it do this Bosch style? And it, you know, it tries. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I tried that myself. Yeah, I was using yeah. Midjourney for a while as an okay. experiment, um, yeah. and and it failed miserably for some reason. It's it's oh, the same okay. thing as when when people try to interpret the Garden of Earthly Delights, and we all fail miserably at understanding it. The AI seems to struggle. Also, it's interesting. Oh, that's good. Good. At least there's a holdout. There's something we can we can fight back. We, we may need to weaponize this in the future <laughs> when the yeah. Butlerian Jihad begins in earnest. We may right. need to upload high quality versions of Bosch paintings yeah. in order to disrupt the right. ghost in the machine. Yeah, we'll yeah. be using we'll be using Bosch like figures as code to communicate with each other. Yeah. This is a very a good idea for uh, some sort of a speculative fiction story if anyone wants to take it and run yeah. with it. You can also, you'll be able to find high quality versions of what we talk about on this episode in the show notes mm -hmm. at artofdarkpod.com because we're going to be referring to uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights. So you'll be able to listen without, yeah. without doing that. But if you really want the full experience... Uh, of the Garden of Podcast Delights on this episode, uh, you're going to want to check the show notes and click on the Linkerinos. I also want to say... They will also be on the YouTube. For, for folks who want right. to click on the YouTube and watch the video, we'll be bringing them into the YouTube video as well. Very good. Brad's going to do a little bit of post-production wizardry. I just want to take 90 seconds and say some new shit has come to light <laughs> about, about MF Doom. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. We I had an MF Doom you... episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is a bit of a tangent, but I mm. feel like it's current. The He was, what, 49 years old? And the Ooh, story of what happened is quite uh, harrowing. He had, a, he had a bad reaction to some blood pressure medication during COVID, ended up at an NHS hospital and expired in that fashion. Which yeah, and is, his wife, mm. according to his wife, she is uh, somewhere along the line of filing a lawsuit that he was arguing that he was neglected pretty seriously. Mm. So wow. it's sad to think about, uh, you know, our a boy artists yeah. just wow. suffering the metal by himself in a, yeah. in a hospital room. On a um, ventilator. Yeah, terrible. Alone. Horrible. Mm. Another another COVID casualty yeah. uh, in terms of like the plague and how that was yeah. handled. Yeah. And uh, so I, we just had to pause and make room for that because I wasn't sure that he was even dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, we felt the same way. <laughs> so we kind of speculated. He really is. Yeah. And he, we didn't find out he had died for uh, two wow. months at least. And so right. after after the fact. So um, yeah, right. it's just a tragic story. We'll but just yeah, I think make a little that, room Kevin. for uh the metal face. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate right. that. Where I want to start on this is I want to I want to know more about and I think we're going to be able to use this to take, go right into Bosch. Uh, MJ, I want to know more about well, pitch or describe Creative Codex as a, a project to people. I don't want to do it. I've got you here, um, uh, but I love your show and I want to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Sure. I mean, uh, and I don't blame you. I sometimes have difficulty describing it myself. Yeah. Because it, it started from an impetus of just uh, a personal passion that began when I was a teenager, which was idolizing certain creative figures. You know, one of my first creative idols was Kurt Cobain. Uh, I was a musician myself when I first started in, in my creative path. And that progressed to trying to understand, you know, well, what makes someone like Kurt Cobain stand out from everybody else? You know, how does he become the king of grunge and then also this idol status? Um, aside from all the drama and gossip involved. And uh, th that be became kind of this lifelong passion of trying to understand what creative genius is. And when I became of age, I guess you could say, and, and then past college, I still felt like no one properly um, or effectively addressed this very real, serious inquiry into creative genius. So it was just everyone who tried just wrote kind of these... Um, very uh, uh, broadly um, 
spe not specific at all, just general books about creativity and how to improve your creativity, whatever, whatever. And just no one seemed to be tackling this problem. If there were already somebody doing it or doing a podcast on it, I wouldn't have pursued it, honestly. But it's become through that a creative outlet of my own. And I create all the music for it and the sound design and write it. And it's it's become a passion of my own to, to kind of like focus in on all these different creative figures throughout history and try to understand what's going on there and what can we learn from them still. Yeah, and you do a great job. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the music. The music is great. It took me, I don't think I realized at first that you were making all of that as well. And I just thought, man, MJ, these things are, uh, these things are works, works of art. Um, podcasts don't always, don't always get elevated to the works of art necessarily, but Creative Codex certainly is. I appreciate um, that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how does, so when we take this, this concept of, you know, trying to understand creative genius, trying to understand what creativity is, and we, we start looking at Bosch, uh, it, well, first of all, if, if there is such a thing as creative genius, I think we'd probably say that he was, I think, right? I mean, I totally. certainly am of that opinion. Yeah. Without um, yeah. I don't um, think that's arguable. No, not Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. so what do we what do we learn? Can we learn something about creativity from the Garden of Earthly Delights? Sure. I mean, what's interesting about Bosch specifically is that he's he's coming out of this late medieval time period of the mid to late 1400s. And then as he's alive, ren the Renaissance begins in all of Europe, basically, and spreads like this intellectual virus <clears throat> in a very beautiful way. Um, and so He's very much a man of his period, but also he's coming out of this late medieval period. And you see it in his works. You see it like the fact that he's in that place in the world, in, in the Netherlands, and that the Renaissance is basically starting, sprouting out of places like Italy, and that it's a little delayed before it reaches him in full force. Mm -hmm. And But but he already has the, the, the same kind of intellectual spirit and the kind of the the ability to think more freely than than those those rigid, very Catholic norms were in the late medieval period mm -hmm. and so we see innovation obviously through him but we also see really interesting things like the fact that he was part of a multiple generations long family of artists mm -hmm. and this is something that very rarely happens anymore and even in his time his family the von Aachen clan the von Aachen family were the only ones in that city in Zürtikenbach that could say they had a lineage of artists in their family. So his father was a painter, his grandfather was a painter, and his great-grandfather was also mm -hmm. this master craftsman painter. And we his brothers his... as well. I believe Bosch's brothers as yeah, well. Yeah, just a yeah. family business, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, so... not, and not craftsmen, not, not well, I mean, yes, craftsmen, but these weren't... Um... Uh, the family business isn't sort of like making the same thing over and over and we're really good at, uh, you know, a type of brickwork. These appear apparently were all art actual artists painting. Uh, all pieces. of my children will be podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> we're starting the training now. Good. Yeah. You got to yeah. bring them in there, just yeah. expose them through association and they'll yeah. pick up all the basics right away. Right, right. right. You're you too charming. Bed. You need yeah. to become insufferable. <laughs> Listen, yes, we're we're driving, we're long, you know, long distance driving. Yes, keep blabbering in the backseat. Yeah. Keep going. Yes, your mother's going crazy, but keep right. going. Yeah. yeah. Don't stop. Now make sure you include your links. Patreon.com slash art of dark pod for yeah. the after dark. Yeah. yeah, link and subscribe. Smash right. that button. Right. Anyway, yes, good. Okay. <laughs> but no, I think that's a really interesting point, this whole family tradition. But and you're right, you can see him coming directly out of the medieval era. You know, we in our poor episode talked about the the seemingly profound influence of drolleries on on his work, which are sort of marginalia on illuminated manuscripts and things like that. And Bosch takes these and and often I don't know if you'd quite say he foreground foregrounds them, but they become a the, a critical element to his most famous pieces. Is these oddities in a way? Um, yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he's he's obviously coming from an Orthodox background, a Christian Catholic Orthodox background, mm -hmm. but in works like Hey Wayne, in works like mm, The Garden of Earthly Delights, and we only have twenty five of his surviving works, twenty five of his paintings, which is insane, mm -hmm. but. Uh, in half of those works, let's say, he has these tendencies toward 
innovating these concepts and playing with them. And even in Garden of Earthly Delights, if you look at that hell panel, half of what's going on there is he's perverting Catholic symbolism. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it in such a way where this thing can be viewed by a cardinal, you know, in Henry III's estate just visiting, and he's not going to say burn that thing. He'll right. just, he, he either won't notice it because it's subversive, or he'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, there's corruption in the church. I guess somebody's got to be representing it at some point. Right. And so he's, he's saying. Yeah. And, and also like that would be what hell is like. Hell might have some kind of like inverse church to it. Right. Like mm. if you're trying to show a picture of hell, you might have. Uh, whereas Bosch was probably pointing out to real, real corruption in the church at the time. Um, what is the name when you can basically pay for positions? Uh, simony? indulgences right? yeah. well indulgences as well uh, yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah. yeah dur during faith, i had to get it in there yeah. <laughs> yeah, during bosch's lifetime shortly before he painted the garden of earthly lights there was a very famous case of a monk who was stabbed to death in his sleep um because he was uh proclaiming against simony and he was he was um mm. starting to give public lectures about it yeah. and he was very close to starting to name some very important figures who had paid basically for their positions wow. and so someone like nothing. mafioso style right stuff. right no nothing changes wow yeah i didn't know that <laughs> word yeah yeah simony so indulgences is mm. when you pay mm. to be forgiven basically forgiven for your sins yeah, simony it's... is i'm looking it up and this is in the catholic encyclopedia so you know mm. it's true right <laughs> uh, a deliberate intention of buying or selling for a temporal price such things as are spiritual or a next unto spirituals Mm. interesting yeah. pay for sacraments mm. and pay for p positions in the church uh, and if, things like that. it would be uh you know i'm a priest i want to be a bishop we're going to bribe you now i'm a yeah. bishop now i can yeah. move diagonally on the board right <laughs> this is what's theorized is represented in the bottom right corner of the hell panel it's mm -hmm. easy to find you just open the thing up all the way in the bottom right corner of the third panel you see this hmm uh, the, the, the scene playing out where a man is kind of awkwardly leaning away from an enormous pig that's trying to embrace him. And the pig is dressed as a nun. Right. Yes. On I'm, his I'm lap, you see some kind of document. And because of this, uh, it's official kind of uh, tassels on the bottom. You can assume it could be a contract of some kind because they looked like that at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a quill in the in the pig's hoof. And then behind them, there's the only figure in the entire <clears throat> rightmost panel that's dressed in a robe. Oh, so he yeah. Doesn't okay. belong. He doesn't belong in hell because mm. he's uh, a church assistant or a canon that basically carries these contracts or um, just deals as, as, as assistants do with these kinds of matters. And so it's assumed that what, what Bosch is directly representing here is simony, somebody who's paying for their position to become a cardinal. That makes sense. Or just some kind of obvious corruption going on. That makes total mm. sense. What do you do you make? Uh, I know pink is significant in this painting for anybody who's even glanced at it. There's plenty of pink. Do you make significance of his robe being pink in this? Well, what's interesting. Yeah, you could uh, make that leap to back to the first panel. And Bosch mm. does this in brilliant ways. He links all the panels together. So you go back to the first panel and you see that the god in the form of the sun jesus mm -hmm. is wearing the same kind of robe that that church official is wearing in the third panel he's wearing if, the same color if if yeah. i may this is something that i i learned this year is that twice a year in the catholic liturgy uh rose pink can be used on the third sunday of advent and i'm looking <laughs> this up again can yeah. be used on the third sunday of advent or the fourth and the fourth sunday of lent so it has a particular they they only wear the rose vestments two Those times two a times. year Interesting. yeah and so it, this could even be suggesting what day this is happening you could <laughs> right but again we would have to go in and see sort of how long i mean there's a lot to un so i'm not making a, cl a claim one way or sure. the other but that's something to note yeah i, I think i think you know one thing about looking at bosch i mean one of the things that's so compelling about it is well first i mean there's just a lot happening uh, but oh, yeah. also that like it does seem everything is deliberate so kevin you pointing right. that out 
I think well, that's I, fair game. I've got I've got more about it. So one of the one of the two days where rose pink is worn uh, is the third Sunday of Advent. It's also known mm-hmm. as Gaudete Sunday or Rejoice mm-hmm. Sunday. Okay. Uh, we're reminded of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, which reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Indeed, the Lord is near. You could see if if the guy, the fellow on the lower right is wearing pink, there could be some irony here. So listen, mm-hmm. on this Sunday, one is encouraged because the birth of the Lord is growing closer. Gaudete Sunday is marked mm-hmm. with rose colors, both the vestments and the Advent candle. To represent that, as Christians, we believe that penance is not without purpose. Hmm. Christ suffered and defeated death and, and so forth. In any hmm. case, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is and we just looked at one sliver, right? One corner of this. This and in, and in and any of the reading I've ever done, no one has mentioned the vestments themselves being pink. Pink is talked about because it's present, but that aspect, and again, I think it's fair game to uh, we got a little wild and woolly with our core episode because we got into Wil- Wilhelm Franger and and these various interpretations that have uh uh, there's a sliding scale of credibility as you go through them, I mm. feel like. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's like anything else when there's a lot of unexplained in, when a lot of thing, a lot of space that is unexplained, right? Strange things start coming into it. Oh, right? so, that's, to the, try that's and... the fun part. That's, that's yeah. what's so fun about this painting. I mean, I've, I've personally stared and studied this painting for over 30 hours and Whoa. I still find things that are completely fascinating about it. I still find ways that when I open it up for the f- for the first time that day, I'm like, yeah, let's get into this thing again. Wow. What else is going on in here? There's just so much. And it, it really, I think, achieves with something which is technically uh, impossible. It is a perfect work of art mm, because yeah. of that reason. You're perpetually engaged by it, and that's why... 500 years have passed and people still are trying to figure this thing out mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting the the that's an inter- that's a great metric for a piece of art too right it's like how compelling it sort of transcends any uh you know there are trends in the art world um styles come and go this seems to transcend all of that i remember i have a a, a fairly big wood plaque version of it um and it's sort of tucked away in my basement now, but at one point it was pretty prominent in a living room I had. And uh, my dad, who has very little to no interest in art, mm. I remember him coming over and just sort of staring at it. <laughs> and and not in like, a, at first I was like, oh, he's going to think this is like kind of weird to have. And maybe he did, but he did seem to be like trying to figure it out. And it was like one time I actually saw him engage with a piece of art, you know, sort of transcends age and interest and aesthetics and and uh, religious temperament and, and everything. Yeah, it reminds me. This is a bit of a tangent, but it reminds me of when I took my uh, now teenage daughter. She must have been mm, 10 years old to uh, the uh, MoMA in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And we're going through it and we we stopped in front of a Pollock and she said, I like that one. Mm, right and i'm like take that uh you know uh modern art haters yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah like, everybody who's it's saying just, it's sloppy or it's right, what, right. easy or it's yeah. Cheap. yeah if you've never seen one of those uh, irl you haven't seen one mm. in any case yeah. yeah even with bosch this painting you know we're, we're so so used to seeing it reduced to a poster size or a screen or our even smaller screens mm-hmm. in our hands that we we don't realize the how massive this thing really is and that's part of what impresses people so much when they when they do view it so it's in the prado museum right now so it's it's in their permanent collection in spain mm-hmm. and this thing is seven feet tall and 12 feet wide yeah it's huge. wider than the span of your arms it's basically two people standing side by side with their arms outstretched that's how long how wide yeah. it is yeah. and it's huge. it's nuts just the size of it so um and there's just so many elements to it that like that let's say make it a perfect work of art uh, another element being that even if you're familiar with it and you let's say you've, you've kind of uh traveled through every inch of the painting and you can imagine it in your mind someone can come along or you can read something in a book and and someone can say just one or two sentences that completely reframe your understanding of everything that's going on in the painting right right 
Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And I, I found that going through different interpretations of what the work is about is I would spend, you know, a week or a few days looking carefully at one theory. What's the evidence? What are they, you know, what are they referencing to, to come to this conclusion? What is it? What are the details of the interpretation? And I'd get to the end of it, like, yep, that's gotta be the answer. And then, you know, then I pick up the next one completely different, read through that and be like, yeah, that has to be. Like I could be sort of talked into thinking this thing means, uh, well, within some degree of reason, a pretty wide range. It's very open to interpretation. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, people in the 60s and 70s were dead set on believing that Bosch must have been on magic mushrooms. They just accepted right. it as a fact. And people right. wrote about it like, clearly, this is like the central panel is about the peace and love in an idyllic landscape that mm -hmm. we can all, you know, work toward. And he was obviously using magic mushrooms, and that's why he's got all these various fruits and things people are eating. And now, right. you know, 50 years later, people are like, that's the stupidest thing anyone's right. ever said. It's like the opposite of, it's probably the opposite of what's happening, right? right. Um, to some degree, yeah. Have you looked at the Garden of Earthly Delights tripping, <laughs> right. bro? The triptych tripping? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. right. Oh, that is funny. That yeah, me. You, you're, you're pointing toward the idea that it's a bit of a Rorschach. You're going to see mm -hmm. there's enough in it, and it's elaborate enough and almost hypertextual in itself and imagine standing in front of it 12 feet wide seven right. feet tall uh, just you and you're and gonna have something reflected back to you unique to yourself mm -hmm. and all all great art does that indeed mj you i believe counted how many people are in this work of art in yeah because I, I was so frustrated that no one mentions it and then i googled it now google yeah. will save me and I said, yeah. how many people are in the central panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Nobody mm -hmm. did it. I'm like, what the hell? This is so That's, basic. That seems pretty, so yeah. It took me, I don't know, it took a while. But uh, there's over 500 people in the central panel. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're all like, they're all meticulously done. Mm -hmm. There's no one that looks sloppy or not well thought out in their pose or what they're supposed to be doing. Or what's interesting is, is you know, you get into looking at this thing really close, like in, in that link mm -hmm. that we were uh, yeah. sharing. Mm -hmm. And you start to see the logic that's going on here, that these people aren't just randomly strewn across the landscape. They're often in groups uh, between 2 to 15 people. It could be anything between 5 people, 10 people. But, but they're very clearly... Um, working together, either doing something, enjoying something, giving something to one another. And it's it's all filled with like the intention of of these bodies of people, you know? Yeah, I don't think anything is unintentional or throwaway in here, in here, right? I mean, and that's part of what's the in interpretive richness of it as well. I mean, I remember there's there's and, and there's also I guess what's interesting about this and, and it's comparable to some other great works of art like uh say Finnegan's Wake or something along those lines where there is still room for you as a as somebody who's appreciating the piece to come up with new interpretations to notice something that nobody's ever really noticed before um to draw connections that nobody's quite ever done just because there is so much happening nobody is going to ever be able to um fully map um what's going on in yeah. this piece um and and so there's always you know i i have not spent 30 hours looking at it i've spent a lot of time but I, yeah every time i look i i've started to look more in the background of mm -hmm. the middle panel where there's mm -hmm. quite a bit of activity it's not shown in as much detail because the figures are smaller obviously but there is some strange stuff going on back there oh. there's a crowd of people entering a, a broken egg which is reminiscent of the tree man in the hell panel um there are uh quite strange looking birds and sort of you know potentially demonic figures or chimeras of some sort um and i do think he put them all there quite intentionally oh yeah yeah. yeah, no, without a doubt. He's at this point of his life, you know, he's in his mid to late 50s and he knows what he's doing. I mean, this guy is four generations of artists and he's he grew up with a paintbrush in his hand and 
at this point of his life, he's receiving commissions from royalty and nobility from around the city that he lives in. And because of that, it's not that he's only receiving commissions from church, you know, from, from church figures and for pieces that are meant to be displayed on an altar. He's receiving these commissions from from um, very cultured nobility that that see themselves as patrons of the arts and that want to be supporting modern art. And mm. so they're letting him run wild a little bit. It's it's assumed that they gave him, um, that whoever commissioned it gave him some degree of guidance, like, I want this and this kind of work. Right. But then they let him run wild with it and said, you know, let's see what you can do with this. And clearly he he had a great amount of artistic freedom with with what he did because uh, a lot of it can't be displayed in a church. You know, it's not right. meant to be viewed by parishioners. And yeah, uh, it's not, you don't have it, the church, the Christmas service and you open up the, open <laughs> <laughs> I would go but, to that church. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty interesting. Let's talk I would about go that. to that church too. Yeah. Let me just reiterate for those listening that uh, MJ found us this incredible version of the garden of earthly delights online i've put a link to it in the show notes at artofdarkpod.com you can zoom in on this thing it loads quickly you can zoom in and see the crackler you can see the blobs of paint it, you yeah. can go in in almost to a, like a microscopic level it, uh, it's not quite the same as seeing the painting but i bet you can get closer to it than you can in the prado <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. Right. Yeah. They're not yeah, going to let you get this close get at the Prado uh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, but I'm seeing things in the painting that I had never seen before uh, oh, simply so because of the it's incredible. I was in the I'm going to hijack you for a minute here, Brad, but mm -hmm. I was uh, on the upper right just looking at these little demons in the hell panel. Mm -hmm. It's so metal. There's just yeah, like, I mean, there's a whole yeah. little scene going on in the upper right of the hell panel um, back. It's sort of like volcano, volcanic activity mm. back there. Mm -hmm. it, it looks like to me. And there's like mm -hmm. a little white and black figure fighting on like a little. Um, I mean, it's oh, like yeah. a scene from I an action now. movie. Right? Yeah, it looks like very like, you small. shall not pass. <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Who knows yeah, what that's about being... exactly? Yeah. Well, and it, let me let me circle back to that figure in the lower right. Uh, mm -hmm. Before I give it back to you, Brad, the lower right the of fellow panel, in the yeah. in the rose colored vestments is, to my eye, obviously doubled with the with the Lord, our God, mm -hmm. on the left in the pink vestments. So, uh, would that what would that suggest to you, though, Kevin? Well, it would, to to my mind, it would suggest uh, that our fallen nature and that mm -hmm. we we do our best to. Um, you mean the priesthood explicitly you uh, embodies Christ during the uh, Eucharist and during um, confession. They're in persona Christi. They're doing their best to embody the Lord uh, right. sort of spiritually. And of course, you, if you're following on what you said earlier about the simony and what I mentioned about indulgences, this would seem to suggest like we're missing the mark here. Mm -hmm. And and that's not uh, heretical or uh, it's not, no, it's not really. heretical that, that, to say that is the doctrine of the church is, is that like sort of through our failure, we've, you know, we cried, we sort of build hell for ourselves. I mean, that's mm. my understanding of it. Um, the uh, it's just it, I think it's so comical. This fellow on the right who's entering off frame, it's like he's come in off stage. Yeah. To, like during the middle of like a. You know that that GIF uh, where where the the fellow walks into the room and everything's on fire. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's it's got that kind of a vibe. Yeah. Like, wow, what yeah. am I doing here? Yeah, totally. You know? totally. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I'm glad you point out the humor because as I'm thinking about this, you know, Bosch strikes me in this image as a very seriously religious person, and and thereby could be severe, perhaps, right? But he also has to be has you can't make this without a sense of humor. I don't think totally right. I mean, there's too many gags in it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I it, mean, he's yeah, he's poking fun at butt humor in right. the middle panel like several times. Yeah. Um, but but one last thought, let's say on the on the guy on the lower right, since we, yeah. we keep coming back yeah. to him, there's there's something there that you only see if you have this high resolution version we're talking about from this link. So. Mm -hmm click a few times or zoom in a few times on this guy in the red and you'll see on his shoulder and this is we're talking about the on the lower right panel 
on the lower right of the hell panel. Mm -hmm. You'll see on his shoulder, he has some kind of what might be a coin purse of some kind or cup almost. And there's a black frog kind of hopping into it. Yeah. So uh, throughout all three panels, Bosch uses kind of these black animals as often symbolic of the the corruption of hell in a way. And But the frog specifically, again, you have to see this in context of the time period. Mm, during the 1400s, they in art, in, like in church art and uh, individual artists who are kind of elaborating on certain symbols, uh, there, there's famous depictions that show each animal represents a certain cardinal sin. And it turns out the toad or frog represents greed. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. He's taking money. Uh, he's taking money for the position. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. that, that tracks very clearly. Yeah. What that's, that happens all throughout the painting. That's, that's, right. that's about how crazy uh, Bosch's use of symbolism is. He's, he's visual metaphors everywhere, basically. Yeah. And I mean, that little image is probably uh, on the full scale painting. Seven by 12 is probably the size of your pinky nail or something. It's quite small. I mean, you got to zoom in a ways Maybe. to see oh, it. Oh, in terms of the frog itself, you mean? Yeah, the frog yeah, itself. Right, right, I would right. imagine it's probably, yeah, yeah. yeah it's quite small. Um, so, I also noticed, I, which I'd never noticed, zoomed this far in, the gentleman in the pink vestments or robe or whatever has a kind of a red nose. Oh, yeah. Which I don't, that yeah. could suggest alcohol. Yeah, maybe he was drinking. Alcohol or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it doesn't <laughs> feel like you wouldn't, doesn't feel accidental. So Got yeah. drunk. Took yeah. some money for a position. Yeah. Woke up yeah. in the hell pan. Right. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> not good. No. That's no, a day record. Not. <laughs> certainly not. Yeah. There's there's another um, very interesting use of this blush of red. If you go back to the first panel this time. Mm -hmm. And again, only possible if you're if you're able to view it from an inch away. But this is the detail that we're thinking about. So you you zoom in on Adam. He's you know he's reclining. He's got one arm down like that. And so you zoom in on his face, and you'll see that his cheeks are just ever so slightly blushed. Mm -hmm. There's there's a sense of arousal because when if you follow his eyesight, his line of sight is no longer looking at God. It's now trying to make eye contact with Eve, who has her downcast eyes, no blush on her cheeks at all. Right. Not aroused, not 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 interested not in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this has been suggested as part of the interpretation that this whole painting is about like the invention or the first moment of desire, mm. right? the, the first time that that, you know, Adam in his innocence is the the corrupting influence of physical desire comes into reality, um, which I think is an interesting as as excited as I am about the Franger interpretations and the 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 um, the the you know, that he was doing some kind of medieval psychedelic interpretations as fun as those are, I, I do feel like there is an element of Occam's razor here where, <laughs> uh, you know, understanding that Bosch is in some ways fairly conventionally religious, but is also just a visionary artist is mm. probably the best interpretation and you know and taking his shots at corruption within the church which as kevin said isn't heretical in and of itself i mean if you have corrupt figures in your institution and you want them out that's not heresy um right. that's just that's you know proper yeah. really sure um you, yeah. you almost think you could reform it Right. You might start thinking you could reform it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it could lead to all sorts of yeah. unforeseen consequences. <laughs> right. Yeah, MJ. Right. So um, we were having a lot. I'm having a lot of fun. I hope you guys are. Yeah, yeah but, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to maybe just give the listeners who, who haven't mm, uh, had a chance to spend much time with this painting a, a, a bit of a, a short guide of, of how to frame it for themselves Please do. Please do. as they explore it, right? So one thing to consider is that this is three panels, and the way Bosch originally intended it in, in the tradition of triptychs is that the triptych starts closed. So the, the two outer panels, the wings, come in, and when you, are, when you first walk into a room that has a triptych, uh, let's say even a cathedral, the, the triptych stays closed throughout the year. 
And traditionally, it only opens for saint days and holidays. And that's when people can then, you know, take in and reflect on everything that's inside. And then otherwise it closes again. So it's kind of an event when the thing opens itself. And if you view it at the Prado, that, that's how they start every day. They start with it closed. They let people in and then they open it and it stays oh, open for wow. the whole day. At the end yeah. of the day, they close it. Close it. Wow. So it's there's a ritual to, to viewing it too. So mm -hmm. on the outer panels, when you close it, there's two panels on the outside. Uh, Bosch has made a point of painting what can only be described as uh, the creation of the world in the first few days. And so when you view it, it's this orb. It's this silvery orb, and he's painted it in a style called Grisset, where you used very minimal color. It's mostly just grays, whites, and blacks to give kind of this ancient look to it. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of glossy orb. Inside, you see a flat plane, and that plane is starting to be the earth. It's starting to be the land on the earth. And when you zoom in and you see that, you see vegetation there's no humans there's no animals yet it's just veget vegetation there's some odd kind of claw-like structures that are certainly not natural they're mm -hmm. almost kind of like the beginning of some kind of perversion already taking place maybe you know a little bit of a corruption being introduced that, right and they're, know, they're they're reminiscent yeah. of some of the big large structure sort of organic totally. structures you see inside but they're right gray yeah. uh not as complicated perhaps yeah, yeah, totally. Almost as if there's something already that's a, there's a crack that mm -hmm. um, is running away from God in a in an interesting interesting way, and and this kind of goes in line when you know, with, with Gnostic thought, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, but let's say underneath this land, there's a body of water, and so the reason is that uh, scholars believe that and this is generally accepted, that Bosch is depicting the third day of creation when God introduces water into the mix. And mm. so this, this land is floating on top of water and above there are already clouds. So again, you know, th this also implies that there's there's been water introduced. Right. And then in the top left, you see very, very tiny, uh, the figure of God, and he's holding a book, assumed to be, you know, he's holding the Bible, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And he's he's got... Um, his his gaze on the earth and he's just in, in the midst of creating it. And then above, just above on the diagonal to the right above him is, is lettering. And this is a quote from Psalm 33. And that stretches across the first and the second outer panel. And which is, uh, he, he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Hmm. So this is a very specific moment in the beginning of creation that Bosch is depicting involving water. And the, mm -hmm. the reason it's important to point this out is because then when you when you hop into the larger work itself and the two panels open, water is a central theme that ties together all three panels. Mm -hmm. And this is hard to notice because there's so much else going on. But if you start to pay attention to the bodies of water first, you start to notice that, that Bosch makes very deliberate choices with them. And... Uh, they they yeah. tie together the themes of the three panels. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the in the 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 left panel, the garden, the I guess the Adam and Eve panel. Um, is that panel referred to specifically? Because the middle is the sort of the middle. I know is actually supposed to be the Garden of Earthly Delights, and that name is taken over the entire painting. Of course, we don't know what Bosch called it. it he didn't necessarily even have a title. Um, but in the first panel, the left panel, yeah, you've got a, a, a one of those organic. Architecture. I don't even know what to call them. These oddities, these structures that we see in multiple places throughout the painting, and that's on a body of water. And then the second panel. I mean, there's quite a bit of water. There's there's the 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 sort of lake in the background. There's the vortex in the in the middle that has water in it. And then mm. there's there's another bit of water where you've got some. You know, people floating on some nice Boschian oddities uh, in bubbles and flowers and that sort of thing. And then, of course, in the hell panel, it's frozen over or largely frozen over. Yes. The tree man is frozen right. is frozen in place. That's um, the big detail. Yeah, that's frozen. Yeah. Water. Is yeah. Frozen. Yeah. Which is an interesting uh, I kind of got curious about, you know, the history of the conceptions of hell looking at this. Like, how well does this fit into what a uh, Dutch Catholic in the 15th century would have imagined as hell 
Um, and I'm not sure, honestly. I know, I know that. Well, where my mind is gone, when you're thinking about water and you think about like God moving over the face of the water and mm. God, yeah, I mean, you can't see the reflection of anything in ice. Right. And I, and it might, it might also subvert expectation. Um, that's true. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I don't know the history. I'm getting ready to do Dante. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's going to be epic. Well, but, uh, you know, if, if the image of hell is anything like what we have now, and I'm sure Stephanie would come on and Stephanie Leahy, the great uh, medieval doctor from the Crowley episode, she mm-hmm. may say, no, no, it's always been this way, but right. we think of hell as hot. Right. 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 So, yeah. you know, you, but you, it, but you also think of it as like a, like a cool distance from God, the further away you are mm. from God and from God's grace and love. Right. Is e- in equal measure your hell. Right. Right. So, right. no. Yeah. There you go. Sense. Yeah. If, if we talk about the, um, I want to go back to the outer panels again, because in our core episode, we didn't talk about it much. I mean, what do we make? I, I found it interesting, this, his depiction of God here in the upper left corner. And it just, you know, my amateur looking at it, it feels uh, diminutive. Like he's tiny. Um, (laughs) and not to say that that, that's necessarily blasphemous or anything, but it seems, I'm not sure what, if Bosch is trying to tell us something with that as well. I mean, it's not some dramatic, um, you know, you compare it to, um, uh, Michelangelo's, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it, but the the moment where he's, he's touching, he's touching the finger of Adam. Sistine Chapel, right. Yeah. yeah, This dramatic, gorgeous painting. I'm going to jump in here again. Yeah. I mean, I think this is Christ, and I think on the outer you, pa- on the outer panel on the left. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the garden panel. Oh, we're, we're talking, talking about, about the outer panel. We're talking about the white. outter panel. Okay, all right, good. Yeah. Let me, so let yeah. me. Okay, all right, yeah. very good. I want to make sure, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes too. Yep. I want to make sure. I'm, yep. I'm and in the YouTube thing. video. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at God in the outer panel. Upper left. Oh, upper left. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. They're small. I can't. Little... I can't zoom into him in the same way. No, no. They're yeah, they're yeah. they don't provide. That's. I don't even think that exists at, in, on the internet. A higher resolution version. Uh, okay. Well, so you know what? Yeah, it's that's cool all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fine. I see it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so funny because every time I see something like this, I immediately think of Terry Gilliam <laughs> from well, uh, Py- of Python fame. I I have a feeling that Terry Gilliam may have spent some hours <laughs> you think? the Garden of Earthly Delights no <laughs> himself. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so so yeah. the outer panel. So this is what it looks like when it's closed. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now Very it's moody. Now it's yeah. Sense. It lacks it, any of the color that is so famous in mm-hmm. the larger work. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can is imagine the implication it. that this is before creation. It's the or third day this, of creation. This is third the third day, day of creation. Mm-hmm. Is this all supposed to be ice on the outside? I think it's just water. It's just water. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But flat earthers are <laughs> loving this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what did Bosch know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting, too, uh, as you as you would open it, as this would be opened, as you said, saints days and holidays. So a few times, you know, some limited number of times per year, um, you have to think about what is direct. What are the first things that you would encounter if you were watching it being opened? You would see in the central panel um, the vortex in the middle with all of the nubile young ladies being circled by uh m- circled counterclockwise by men on all sorts of wild animals and then you would see the what is the darkest quad uh, darkest coordinate in the central panel which is in the middle of the blue orb about what is that three quarters of the way up to the top i would mm-hmm. say in the middle right. of the blue orb in an opening in it there is a fairly crude even by Boschian standards at least implication of a sex act right um a bear rump which you know we get plenty of those in here but there's something seedy about this yeah one. yeah yeah I want to definitely um riff off of that there's, yeah. there's a lot that can be said there and, and I love that you you guys mentioned that in the episode too that yeah while it's opening that's one of the first slivers you see and that, that's that's such a brilliant insight I love that mm-hmm. I haven't thought of that before so 
a, a quick thing to point out again, linking back to water, water is going to tie all of these together at the moment. Um, notice that in that body of water, in, in this background where there's also that seedy looking uh, scene going on, uh, there's four rivers. And so in, in the Bible, I believe it's in Genesis, it's mentioned that there was a fountain in the Garden of Eden and from it, four rivers extended. So he's, again, I think deliberately playing with these ideas because he he grew up with the Bible and he knows it so well. Certainly. And so we're in this body of water. And like, as you pointed out, there's a circle that shows uh, this seedy act going on with the bare ass next to it. Mm-hmm. Now, notice that this this fountain that they're inside, it's cracked. It's cracking. Oh, but yeah. This, this isn't like a pattern that he's designed on it. He's, he's made it look like it's almost ready to burst. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Right. And what's interesting is that then let's say we keep connecting on these water symbols. We go back to the first panel and there's definitely a resemblance between these two fountains. They're obviously not the same, but the, Mm -hmm. the way that they're structured, the one that's in the center, the upper center of that central panel, and the one that's in the middle of the Garden of Eden, structurally, they're very similar. They're more similar to each other than any of the other fountains are to one another. And then when we look at the one that's on that leftmost panel in the Garden of Eden, in that same kind of hole is where we find that creepy owl. Yes. And this this (laughs) owl, there's so many theories about what owls mean in Bosch's works. Where I land on that, I say that it's the presence of evil. Mm-hmm. It's it's the presence of something that can can see in the darkness where others cannot, and that I think he's playing with these in a brilliant way. And even just this this circular hole in the fountain, and in the other fountain, that's where the seedy thing is going on. You know, and he's he's playing with these things in, in such a brilliant way. Absolutely, no. The uh, yeah, the owl's omnipresent, and you see it in other. We've spent a lot of time just talking about the garden here, but you see it in almost every other Bosch painting, and they're clearly the the one sort of bit of interpretation I came across that I found was interesting is yes, it sort of represents evil, perhaps is the embodiment of Satan, but then also there's a in Bosch's name, there's a recognition that he has some of this in him perhaps right it's like there's something about it um the scholar joseph leo corner talks about how this is a painting about how the enemy is the self um and you know not bosch saying hey i'm evil but sort of that like acknowledging he has an evil part as we all do sort of right mm. it's it's like shadow it's like bosch well, shadow what, work doctrinally this is what original sin is it isn't well, some guilt trip it's an assessment of the nature of man right, right. which yeah. is i think is fairly irrefutable yeah <laughs> like, well i think that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah i think that's probably i mean i'm sure there's more to it but i mean yeah. fundamentally it's not some radical position to say that we are all uh prone to mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i yeah. did we did we cover what is hang on one second mj did yeah. we cover uh the the latin on the outer panel we did yes yeah that's okay. psalm 33 yeah it's a part yeah, of yeah. psalm 33 and now within psalm Got 33 it is also where is mentioned that on the third day God introduced water. So it's interesting. It, tie, it ties everything together. Mm-hmm. And so let's say if we're back in the central panel, there's another curious way to see in, into the way Bosch is seeing these symbols play out. So if we go into one of, I think, the most beautiful uh, depictions in this central panel is in the leftmost body of water in the mid foreground, and in the lower half of the painting, on the left side, you'll, you'll see this couple in this beautiful orb that's part of a flower. And they're kind of in mid-embrace. The the man, again, blush on his cheeks. He's leaning in. He's um, touching this woman uh, on her stomach. And it looks like they're about to kiss. And she's touching him on his leg. And this is a very intimate scene within this beautiful orb that's part of the flower. But... Then you remember, where, where, where did we last see an orb like this? And it was on the exterior panels. So the, the question is, itself. yeah, the globe itself, mm-hmm. the, the act of creation in the beginning that starts it all. So I would venture yeah. to say Bosch, again, is playing with this idea that uh, every sexual act is calling back to that moment of creation that brought everything forth. 
But then he 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 one ups himself and says, well, even that is a little bit perverted now, because if you look lower in in what seems to be this beautiful scene displayed, the, this uh, orb connects to this flower that then uh, through its stem goes to this fruit, which an odd man is looking out from through this uh, cylindrical glass, and into the glass is climbing a black rat. Yeah, it's yeah. like what? What does right. this rat want in there? Is 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 this that little another element of corruption entering into what is otherwise this this perfect immaculate you know uh, act of creation? Yeah, and and, and unlike with an owl, I, I feel like a mm. rat is a pretty clear metaphorical. I mean, we've got the Black Plague; they're mm. always associated, fairly or not, always associated with disease. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, little... again, if you're thinking about original sin, I mean, if this couple and this is the part of the panel we're talking about for those uh, Dead Can Dance fans, this mm -hmm. is the the album cover from the Dead Can Dance okay. album, yeah. uh, which it's funny. Every time I mention Dead Can Dance on the pod, people I get a message. People go, nice, good pull. Huh? I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. big right. fan. Right. Been a big fan since the 90s. Okay. Uh, okay. I go way back with those. Anyway, they're great. But yeah, I mean, it, quite simply, right? If this couple is uh, making a child, I mean, he has his hand on her stomach. And uh, mm. uh, if they've made a child, and then perhaps this man in the fruit down below is symbolic of their child even though mm -hmm. it's not a baby, perhaps it's whatever. And he's going to crawl out of this fruit. He, he, you can't get out into the world without encountering this rat. Well, mm -hmm. there's a very clear pointing yeah. toward the doctrine of original sin and, yeah. and just fall in nature. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to put that. I love, I love all this. I want to point out too. It's interesting that we've zoomed in on this detail. It's in very important detail, um, but we've zoomed in on this and we've also and discussed it at length, but we've also skipped stuff about it because you have to just pointing out that fruit. If you notice that fruit has a very carefully done golden texture to it, these little circles mm, that Bosch right. is, that Bosch is included. I don't know what that means, but I bet I don't think it was accidental. Um, just outside of the fruit, sort of just out beyond to the right of that tube, there are a variety of little sort of marbles of different colors. I don't know what oh. that means, but he took like the almost, time to put them there. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like, yeah, you're right. They're like little marbles or, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's almost like he's going to, he's going to come out of that too, but he's going to slip and fall on the shore as soon as he arrives. <laughs> could be, could Again, be. Again, that's, yeah. that's like a prank. This is like, a, it's almost like a, uh, like a Looney Tunes cartoon <laughs> where you sort of imagine, oh no, you know, he's going to trip and fall. Right, well, right. Yeah. yeah, the the other place we see these kind of colored gems or marbles is interesting to point out because again, it's paired with one of these uh, glass uh, vessels or or cylindrical vessels is at the base of the the fountain in the Garden of Eden on the leftmost panel. Um, under the owl, you see this kind of dark mass of land, and it's it's hard to even tell what that land is made of because mm -hmm. it's this dark cerulean blue. But as you zoom in and you see th these cylindrical glass vessels are poking out of it, and then surrounding them are these gems and marbles. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Yeah, I had man. No, what was this guy before. tripping on? I tell yeah, you what. Yeah. I tell well, you who. Uh, I'll tell well, Brad, you. We're coming up on our hour. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say the cat, the 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 Linda Harris Cathar. Uh, the Linda Harris Bosch was a Cathar interpretation. Is those orbs represent um, captured souls at in different colors are different levels of being captured. Essentially, Ooh. not mm. saying that's what it is, but that's one that's one person's attempt at explaining what those things might be. Mm. Um, there's certainly a, a lot of them in the painting and depending on how flexible your boundaries are of saying it's one of these orbs, the fruit is very orb like um, it, it's 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 everywhere and it appears in his other paintings as well. Yeah. Yeah, I never noticed it on this on the on the first panel though. That's very interesting. What are we going to talk about on the After Dark, Brad? Ah, well, there is one uh, in the core episode. We sort of discussed that. Hey, nobody really knows who commissioned this thing or what the the impetus for making this particular piece uh, is. Um, you know, Bosch is something of a to some degree was an independent artist, but. Uh, you know, also something of this scale, probably somebody was going to cut him a check for it. Um, there is a theory has to do with syphilis about 
who commissioned this painting and why. So we're going to talk about that. And then I think we've got another couple of, of treats to discuss as well. That is for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pot. If you appreciate what we are doing, the great guests that we bring on, the epic core episodes <laughs> that circulate around this corner of the internet and that corner of the internet, please materially support the podcast. If you want us to continue doing this show, we need material support. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Just like Bosch, Brad has syphilis. And wait, 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 need... wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kevin, for the after. Kevin, it's easily curable. Spoiler. Like, yo, this... <laughs> but this is, it, I say this frequently, but I really mean this. Um, MJ, I feel like we could go on for, uh, we could probably just hover over this painting and this fabulous link that you shared for another mm. two hours without breaking a sweat. But we're going to come back and do more on the after dark. Brad, did you cover everything you want to cover on the on the main one here? Um, I mean, more or less, but I, I definitely want if MJ, there's there's aspects that you feel like we didn't get. To, I mean, we're not going to obviously get to every one of 500 people on there. Maybe another round two someday. We can do that. Um, is there any other sort of striking? I know you've spent a lot of time with this. And I know as I was listening to your episode, you had moments where you're like, listen, I've never read an interpretation of this. And this is what I think. And every time you did that, I was like, that's pretty. That's probably right. <laughs> Oh, so thanks. are there thanks, man. Are, are there are there some striking you know conclusions you've come to about specific elements that we haven't already talked about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the only one I'll focus on is one of my favorites, and again, I haven't heard anyone mention it. Mm -hmm. uh, the first part, yes, I've had someone heard someone mention it, but then tying it over to the last panel, uh, I haven't heard anyone kind of elaborate on this. So if we start on the leftmost panel, Garden of Eden, again. Right, we got uh, Adam, we got God as the sun, and he's presenting Eve to Adam. But next to Adam on the left is this really beautiful tree. And it's a very strange tree uh, that looks very foreign, uh, especially one, uh, this type of tree wouldn't have existed in uh, Zürtigenbosch, where Bosch lived. Uh, but this is called a dragon blood tree, because when you carve into it, it bleeds red. Now, when you look even lower, at its base, you, you see a grapevine growing and these grapes are there. And obviously, you know, this is uh, kind of a prefiguration to the importance of wine in uh, God's sacrifice of his son, Christ and everything. But then as you start to look at, well, what's around these grapes, you have these very flat looking leaves and they're very unnatural looking because leaves don't exist like this. And yeah, they're like discs. They're like coins or something. Yeah, they're not yeah. part, right. They're not mm. part of the dragon blood tree. They're, they're climbing up it. And what scholars have suggested is that this is a prefiguration of the communion wafer, that uh, these are symbolic of this. And I think that's yeah. that's probably right. And as you look at them, there's a, there's a beautiful play of light on each one that Bosch has, has very meticulously attempted to show. Okay, so we got that. Let's say if we agree on that interpretation, mm -hmm. we go an exact horizontal across the plane of all three panels, exactly on the same plane. If you go all the way to the hell panel on the uh, on the furthest right, you'll see this depiction of what is probably one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see. It's this this high chair, this yellow chair that. Uh, on top of which a demon is sitting and he's shoving a naked human into its beak, about to swallow it. And in the process, you could see under it in its thorax or in its in its hindquarters, it's it's crapping out other humans it, it just swallowed. Mm -hmm. And they're falling into an opening in the ground that's a perfect circle. And in that opening, you see the faces mm -hmm. of these other distraught humans. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a lot going on here. Oh my but, gosh! I never, I never saw the faces in down in the little pit there. Yeah, and then there's this oh. other fellow like shitting out coins, and that's oh. where we're getting to. Yeah, the coins are a perversion of the communion wafers. So what we're seeing Based. is the the hell's version of the community. This is the unholy communion. People are being eaten mm. by this demon owl. Again, it's an mm. owl now. Um, mm. It's being crapped mm. into a hole and people now take those coins into their mouth. This is the unholy communion of hell. Yeah. And the fellow Whoa. on the right 
seems to be puking out like wine. Ooh, and so they're, yeah, they're yeah. getting his vomited. Uh, that is crazy and intense. That's Bosch. Please. Yes. That's Bosch. Yeah. You got Bosch, uh, kids. Yeah. You're wow. going to want to come back for more on the After Dark for Patreon. We're going to come back with uh, MJ. MJ, say, uh, give everybody your links so people can uh, find you. Cool. Yeah. Uh, on Instagram, at MJ Dorian. And just search up Creative Codex on any mm-hmm. podcast platform. you find me there. Yeah. What are, what are you working on now for Creative Codex, if you don't mind? Yeah, asking. I'm working on a series currently. It's, um, so I'm doing part two of this series about Dr. Carl Jung and his obsession with alchemy, which took over the second half of his life. And so we're diving deep into what alchemy is and also the very unique way that, that he viewed what, what happens during the work of alchemy and, and how it basically is an early form of psychology. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, that's right up my alley. I will be listening to that. Yeah, absolutely. Check out if Creative Codex. If you're an Codex, Art of people. Darkness fan, you've got to check out Creative Codex. I agree. If you're into 100%. what we're doing, Thanks. you're going to be into what our friend here is doing. Please come back. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We'll take a quick break. Then we'll do the After Dark. I am going to go pray the rosary. <laughs> yeah, we've got to clean our <laughs> In souls. The meantime, <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah. but And that link alone amazing go to the website go to the show notes click this link and bop around thanks again mj yeah thank you guys thank you yeah oh yeah